Hello, and welcome to Reflections. I am Rom Gayoso, your host. Uh, so first of all, thank you so very much for your being here with me and my guests. I know your time is very important, and I will make sure it is invested well. So let's talk a little bit about the show today. Okay. So the show's topic today is intelligence, counterintelligence, and whatnot. We have the pleasure to welcome Professor Rob Dover from University Hall and Arthur Weiss from AWARE. Professor Dover is an expert in national security and intelligence issues. And Arthur Weiss developed several strategies to help corporations rethink their counterintelligence activities. So today, uh, we are lucky to have them here together. It is actually an honor and a privilege. So before uh, I get started, you know, everybody's got some rules and regulations, right? So let me cover that uh, beforehand. Uh, so we actually do broadcast over a variety of different social media channels and they all have slightly different rules concerning the use of chat. And we will be making lots of use of chat today. So all those rules can be summarized as follows. Be nice, be courteous, be polite, and there's just only one golden rule. There is absolutely no hate speech allowed. I have a very special question to ask of you. If you are indeed asking a question, please type in hashtag ask, that is hashtag A-S-K, in front of the question. This way, if I'm scrolling up and down the chat box, I can immediately recognize the question and then pose it to the guests. By the way, the chat box is indeed open. So please type in hi uh, and tell us where you're watching us from. And there are several ways for you to submit a question. You can certainly use the chat box or chat room, depending on the service you are using. And by the way, we do have some comments. Uh, hello, hello, Mary from Orlando and welcome to the show. You can certainly email me a question. Please send an email to editor at imcimagazine.com and I will get to it promptly. If you prefer to use the talk to text function, you can text me at 001 for the United States 480-544-8372. By the way, privacy rules do apply and I will not be saving your phone number or, you know, something remotely like that. Once the text is read, it is deleted and you will not be getting any kind of advertising nonsense from me. In order to receive promotional materials, you actually have to opt in. Okay, so the first order of business is to go through the agenda for today. 
Okay, so this is uh, what we're going to be covering today. First, I'm going to do a short, brief introduction. Then I will welcome Professor Rob Dover, uh, Intelligence National Security Specialist from University of Hull. Then I'm going to welcome Arthur Weiss from AWARE. And by the way, um, we have plenty of time for you to ask questions during the show. But for any reason, if you have some kind of a last minute, you know, burning question, I set aside some time at the end for additional questions. And in any event, if you have not had the chance uh, to ask all of the questions uh, you had in mind, you can certainly uh, leave them on the YouTube uh, chat box and I will be going over it and I will document any additional questions and comments that I see there. And um, I will uh, send them to the guests so they have the opportunity um, to address them. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's talk about this. I will be introducing again, Professor Dover and Arthur Weiss together. I will start with Professor Dover and then I will ask Arthur Weiss some questions. So they're both experts, so we can certainly benefit from that kind of dialogue. Okay. So um, let's get started with the introduction. So Reflections is the live stream and podcast partner of IMCI magazine. You can find us online at www.imcimagazine.com. We are a publication in the United States under registry 2769-0008. We are a member of Edelweiss America Media, and our focus is on intelligence in general. So you can think of it as competitive intelligence, market intelligence, economic intelligence, economic warfare. And there's a good part of the magazine that addresses issues associated with foresight and future studies. By the way, our vision is actually to bring diverse perspectives and voices uh, to the debate. Uh, I actually want to say a few words in regards to today's topic. Over the past issues of the magazine, we had several topics associated with security issues. First, Dr. Soberg Sorlin shared a study done by the Swedish Enterprise Institute, where it details cyber attacks against major Swedish companies, and those are explained in great detail. We also learned the Swedish are not very confident in their ability to stop or even deter some of those attacks. In the current issue of the magazine, Alexander Kristea explained how skills learned in military intelligence are actually transferable to and can be applied in private enterprises. Also, in the current issue, Arthur Weiss's article titled Watching the Watchers shed some light on the need for CI practitioners to constantly monitor those adversarial groups. And in the article, he reinforces the need for companies to actually put more energy into counterintelligence strategies. 
So in today's conversation, we continue along the same line of thought Arthur described in his article, and we're lucky enough to welcome Professor Dover, who is an expert on national security issues, so he can discuss all those pressing issues involving the actions of state actors and how private enterprise suffers from it. In those questions, I will ask Professor Dover how he sees parallels between national security and the work we do in competitive intelligence in the private sector. Okay, so in, without further ado, let me uh, bring them both on board. Hi, Professor Dover, and uh, hi, Arthur. Uh, how welcome to have you on board. And Professor Dover, hello and welcome to the show. Actually, the first question is for you. Uh, your work in national security has parallels in market intelligence practice for private enterprises, right? And certainly, uh, many of those skills are transferable between public and private enterprises. For example, what kind of advice would you offer to those who want to learn more about horizon scanning? Actually, where can we go to learn more? Well, in, in a sort of pure basic way there are there are various tools for horizon scanning but i'll give you something that it isn't slight it isn't off the wall but i think it advances someone's understanding a lot further so you have that basic kind of or fundamental or foundational knowledge in horizon scanning and plenty of tools that one can use the thing that i would say is i would urge anyone who is really interested in horizon scanning to look at two things the first thing is um what's known as systems thinking so systems thinking looks at non-linear, so doesn't look at a problem as being linear, doesn't look at a development of a society, for example, as linear. It looks at it in terms of being a system in which there are emergent properties. And from that emergent properties, it's like the complexity of it generates an emergent property. And from that, I think you can see far more clearly the, the sort of value utility of friction and how friction in society then develops and, and sort of progresses. And from that perspective, you then get some really nice and interesting um, horizon scanning possibilities, like particularly in my field. So there's a, there's a book by a guy called Peter Turchin called um, Ultra Society that is a really good and accessible version of this. I'd urge anyone to read it. It's like really it's fascinating stuff. The second thing is really around looking to um, probabilistic thinking. So to understand, like, so to cast forward, and I think this is where it relates to markets. So when we look at, you know, how a particular stock or how an ETF might develop in the future, be that a 12-month timeline or, you know, five-year timeline, we might give it some plausible narratives. We might be able to cast forward. So we might go back two years and think about Tesla, for example, and how that would develop over this two-year period. Could we have predicted that it would, you know, out outgrow many of the other car manufacturers, you know, even bigger than Volkswagen, for example, in the EU, um, we might have been able to, and we might have been able to plot those divergent kind of pathways. But the crucial thing is to have understood like probabilistic thinking, to have been able to say, these are the possibilities, and we can create a common framework for saying, this is more likely, this is highly likely, this is as near to certain as we can be so that we can actually have that common lingua franca between maybe it's colleagues, maybe it's a wider interest group that we might be in, so that actually that we can converse and debate in a way that has a common platform. And in that way, you can essentially crowdsource or 
curate in a, in a more sophisticated way um, those possible horizon scanning opportunities. So I suppose that what I'm saying to you is I, I think there are many there are many found fundamentals of, of horizon scanning, but those are the ones I think would provide anyone interested in that a considerable amount of value added. Okay. So I want to change subjects a little bit and talk about your research proper. So mm. you wrote a few papers about the topic of Cold War intelligence, right? Uh, including you wrote one about the crypto AG affair, right? Mm -hmm. uh, could you share with the audience your thoughts on the affair? Was yes, that sorry. <laughs> I was yes. just saying, is that a precursor to the usage of intrusive intelligence technologies we see today? Indeed, indeed, I think it is actually. Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, funnily enough, I wrote that in the in the paper with uh, which I wrote with Richard Aldrich. That if you include, so crypto AG essentially was the softening off of the encryption in uh, um, cryptography machines that were used for diplomatic cables. So from that perspective, I think that's where you can limit down the crypto AG uh, case study is that this was really around diplomatic cables rather than anything sort of wider and more interesting or anything that might impact upon you know, ordinary citizens or, or even businesses. But where that does become interesting is it, it fills in a gap. So if we assume that, um, that the stuff around PRISM is in the late 2000s, um, you then have actually that crypto AG takes it from the sort of late 1940s, early 1950s, all the way up to 2000. Um, and that in and of itself is, is very interesting. I mean, the other things about crypto AG that I think are worth of note is actually the the overlap or the sort of Venn diagram between state actor and private actor. So in this case, it's very stark because state actors owned the, the private actor in effect. Um, but we've seen also that the, there has been a commonality, a a willingness to assist government in in, in essentially access to various data sources that that essentially take the crypto AG example on. And I think that's, that's very interesting as well, particularly if we then interrogate in our minds the extent to which those, those um, private actors are willing to almost like turn off the tap for certain actors. What, what value judgments are they, are they placing there? The second thing, which is you know, a footnote that cheers me up, but you know, may not be of wider interest, I don't know, we'll see, is, is actually that this was a really poorly kept secret whilst it was considered to be one of the sort of premium secrets that, that were had in as much as it was revealed by journalists in the 60s. It's revealed by James Banford in his book in 1982. It was revealed by Reagan when talking about the, the attacks on Libya in 1986. Memory goes a bit fady, but about 1986. So it's one of these things that it's almost a known known and it just needed a couple of bits of jigsaw puzzle, you know, really rooted out by the Washington Post to then make all of the rest of the picture look sound. Um, and that's that's really interesting. But so I think for me, the, the key point is that crypto AG wasn't a flash in the pan. It actually gives us an indication of a standard pattern of state behavior. And that won't just be a standard pattern of US state behavior. That's the same for the UK and the five eyes. But it will be particularly the case for Russia, China, Iran, North Korea as our more contemporary adversaries. You know, this, this would be a standard state set of activities rather than anything that was particular or unusual, which is the way it's been cast, I think, in the media. Yeah, so the new actors uh, continue to act, I guess. So uh, along the same lines, right, and nowadays many societies seem locked in some sort of a high-tech espionage warfare, right? Uh, we have security breaches here in the US. You just mentioned some of them, right? 
mm. their attempts to take over nuclear power plants and you know, invasions of you know the electric grid uh, along with patent infringements so all sorts of kinds right uh, is this our new norm i think it probably is and it doesn't give me any joy to say that I think what concerns me, though, from, you know, because I work on essentially, you know, national security intelligence rather than, than, than business or market intelligence, particularly. So what, what, it, what concerns me from that perspective is actually the extent to which we are networked as a society. But that, that isn't a problem in and of itself, but it's the precarity of it. So, you know, if, if for example, an adversary actor does something with the water supply because it gains access to one of those control control norms or um, control panels. I just saw norm cross across the bottom of the screen. Uh, control panels and does something to my water. I have no analog means by which to gain water. Similarly, if they do something to the oil supply, so refinery doesn't work, I've got, there's no analog means by which that, you know, I can acquire that. There's no analog means by which we can, we can patch over how hospitals work, for example. So we are peculiarly vulnerable to attacks on um, essentially electronics that control the various things that we that we we hold dear but equally we have no analog fallback and that's what concerns me from a resilience point of view is that actually you know the the generation that now sits at probably 30 to 35 years and younger they literally have no non-digital experience techniques toolkit to, to dip into even when they are driving around in their cars, you know, if you if you were to strip them of their their ways or their their Google Maps or whatever platform it is that they're using, I think they'd really struggle. I should add as a bracket, and so might I. But you know, those were the techniques that I was at least taught as a youngster. Um, so I think it's that that new norm is yes, absolutely, it is that new norm. But the problem with that new norm is is the vulnerability inserts into the way that essentially we live our lives. Okay. And so um, let's uh, switch gears a little bit, right? Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about counterintelligence, right? So it mm. seems our society is out to pay some more attention or closer attention to the adversaries. You named just a few, right? So while at the same time, we have to increase our counterintelligence efforts somehow, right? I have to ask you this question. Uh, if the adversaries are going to steal anyway, right? What's the importance of focusing on counterintelligence? Well, I think it's really it's it goes back to your horizon scanning question. So for me, it's it's really a question of if we don't know what's going on. So if we don't know the activities that are being run against us, it's really hard for us to have a proper sense of like the, the system that we're operating in. So there are two things. One is understanding what's going on. And the second thing is then doing something about it. And you can choose not to do something about it. And that's an absolutely valid choice. And in intelligence, that's a really valid choice because not actually disrupting or intervening allows you potentially to see a wider picture of what's going on, who's involved and all the rest of it. So that might be a very valid, valid route to go down. But the not knowing is the thing that I think is not optional. So the utility of counterintelligence in that point, from that point of view is it allows you to see the tradecraft that's being um, essentially run against you, it allows you to see that the attack vectors, it allows you to see all sorts of things. It allows you to see who, if you're if you're assuming that the attack is, uh, the attack vector comes from outside of the, of the nation state that you're working within, it allows you to see who is essentially knowingly, unknowingly, unwittingly, um, or whatever it might be, assisting the, the adversary in, in prosecuting whatever it is that they are prosecuting against you. 
So it gives you all sorts of insights that you wouldn't ordinarily have. Now, those things can be done through counterintelligence, electronic counterintelligence. It can be done by, you know, analog means by which to, to do uh, to do counterintelligence, i.e., you know, essentially interrogating human sources, meaning maybe in, in their proper interrogation or in another sense. Um, but to not know, I think it would be an enormous failure on, on behalf of any state, actually. So there is indeed, uh, I guess it goes back to your point of uh, no surprises or reducing the surprises. So there is indeed yeah. some kind of a ROI in there of mm. uh, uh, knowing or, or knowing something, <laughs> what you, what is really going on, right? Um, I wanted to uh, uh, switch gears a little bit. So we did talk uh, about a variety of things, you know, the state actors in going after electric grids, uh, industrial espionage, uh, taking of information, distributing wrong information, or attempting to interfere with elections. The list is not short. <laughs> but is there anything else that keeps you up at night? Uh, what else should I be worried about? Do you know what? There's that, a really good question. And it's quite difficult to frame the answer to this, right? So I'm of an age, I'm in my mid-40s, where I grew up before the internet as in before the internet was readily available. Like, you know, there were some people who had basic internet connections, but I certainly wasn't one of them. Um, and the thing that I worry about is I recognize in myself the difference between that pre-internet age, like the way I consumed information, the way I understood information, the way that I would, you know, gather and discriminate, and that actually it was a far slower process, a more considered process. And the students that I teach now, and it's no detriment to them, but this is the, the era that they, they grow up in, I think they see, treat, feel information like differently to how I did when I was a student. And that, I think, is something that we cannot go back on. So if I was in charge of a group of analysts, I'm not sure I would allow them to be exposed to social media as part of their, their, their when they were making an, an intelligence assessment because I'm not sure what value it might add to what they would, you know, if it's a strategic intelligence assessment, I'm not sure what value it adds. If it's targeting or tactical, then then maybe. But it's that that short form information, something that's basically less than a side of A4, appears to be the norm for this generation. And I, and I think that has done something fundamental to how we understand knowledge, how we produce knowledge. It all has to be very bite-sized digestible. Um, and so that if uh, whilst that is maybe completely esoteric and strange, that that is the thing that would keep me up at night if it was going to do so um, would be just our, the change of our relationship with knowledge. That sounds quite a long list. But yes, uh, some things we have to worry about. Uh, actually, I wanted to change a little bit uh, in terms of not so much what worries you, but <laughs> what excites you about in the future. You know, what are your hopes and dreams about the future? Oh, hopes and dreams. Well, do you know what? So I think so. a lot of people have been really sniffy and, um, and, and you know, uh, um, made detrimental comments about Mr. Zuckerberg metaverse um, and equally have been quite dismissive about actually the speed at which a vaccine was developed for this particular pandemic, which, you know, uh, as, Rob, as Rob knows, um, despite the fact that I've had two of these vaccines, I, I've, I'm still in isolation in the UK uh, with COVID, which is unfortunate in the extreme. But it does actually provide me with some um, with hope for the future, actually, that, you know, if we combine these two things, that actually we are now at a sort of a, a level of technological sophistication. So that my hope is actually we can tackle these challenges of, you know, future pandemics, God forbid, or indeed the climate change issue 
um, or other other issues of productivity, like the you know growing enough food or producing enough food for for the globe, um, whilst also improving our interconnectedness with people around the world, so that actually we have a much better understanding. Uh, and, and these these issues of lack of understanding across cultures is playing out in the UK particularly unpleasantly right now. Um, so actually, it's it's that the, there is a uh, an electronically facilitated and more productive uh, future that in which actually um, you know. The British public, in in my current context, um, can essentially relax a bit more while being more productive. I don't think it's a completely unrealistic either. It's not, it's not so utopian. Well, why not? You know, let's see what technology can do for us. Right. So I have to uh, go back to uh, the issue of uh, concerns. We have a question here. So, uh, who is the most dangerous player today concerning cyber warfare? Uh, in your opinion. Uh, that could affect the status quo of power? Who is the most dangerous player and will it change the balance of power? Well, that's a, re that's a really good question because there are so many contingencies att attached to it and that's not to try and avoid it. So in terms of the status quo, I think China, because of its development of AI, and it is, I mean, it, in terms of the what keeps you up at night, if I was, if I was someone working on, um, you know, international... Um, cyber defenses in a state-based format, I would be deeply concerned about China's development of AI and how far ahead of it, how far ahead of us they are, but also how um, essentially leaky the West is around its data supply. You know, you can actually buy you know, all the social media data that you want in essence. And, and if you can stick it through ever more increasingly powerful AI, it is not implausible to think that the Chinese state knows more about us than either our governments or indeed that I know about myself, for example. So from that point of view, if you're looking for one seismic like shift in the international system, I think China's use of AI and development of AI yeah, is the, is that one that I would put my flag on? Yeah, I guess that's uh, part of the drama because uh, perhaps we haven't seen um, such a well-developed adversary uh, in recent years, and apparently this one is fairly developed. Uh, so I guess that really does keep a lot of people up at night, uh, especially here in the US. People are concerned about not just. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, just going to add, sorry, Rob. I was just going to add, actually, they say what sits in, in the room, like the elephant in the room, as we say, is actually the development of quantum computing. So, you know, there there is, if you if you look in the in the literature, there's, there's a large amount of concern about what uh, post-quantum cryptography looks like. So, you know, does it, if, if, we, if a one side or another develops quantum computing to the extent that it can essentially brute force our standard cryptography, that does something to undermine our banking, our financial transactions, our email you know, security, VoIP security, you know, all, all manner of things that require some level of, you know, password to get into it or some kind of validation could essentially be brute forced. So there's an arms race analogy, but an arms race going on around uh, quantum computing and then, you know, post quantum computing as well. And I, and I think, again, it's not clear to me who is preeminent in that space. Obviously, we've seen IBM and Google um, bringing um, validated technologies to the market, well, not to the market, but, you know, certainly to, the, to being proof of concept and showing that they work. Um, but if anyone, if any state can roll those out successfully, then they will have a competitive advantage. 
Yeah, I, I think I've seen some some of the examples. Uh, so, for example, here I saw a demo. I think it was a demo, but very well done. Uh, they uh, took President Nixon's speech and they modified it. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you've seen this this video, but basically they said, well, uh, if in, indeed uh, the lunar lander had blown up in the moon, it was a speech where he was very somber and very sad, and he was saying mm -hmm. how disastrous. It looked very real. And then uh, I saw the explanations exactly because they took excerpts and then used computer animation from his resignation speech. So there was tone, there was facial expression, mm -hmm. you know, uh, he felt very sorry. So of course that, that never happened. Uh, uh, the, the rocket did, did land and did return, but it was so well constructed. So we can even go back and, and change history uh, using AI and using software. And I said, well, my gosh, uh, you know, what happened there? And, and of course, it feeds more of the conspiracy theorists. It says that we never got to the moon. It was just a, some kind of movie that Hollywood created. <laughs> you put this stuff out there. Now people will, will feel, well, you know, um, what's going on here? I actually saw one done by uh, a very good actor on Queen Elizabeth. And of course, it says a, a bunch of things that are off. And <laughs> at the end of the, the tape, they say, well, it wasn't real. It, she never said that. You know, we said this. And, and then the actor mm -hmm. comes out and starts talking. I saw one on Obama, but nowadays I think technology has evolved and God knows where it's going to go. Uh, but to the point that we can actually get uh, someone that matters to quote, say things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a president, a prime minister, you know, heads of state. So this messaging can be a twist and turn, which kind of feeds to your point, the misinformation or disinformation campaigns that we see. So you see that as more of a, a growing problem then. Oh, I mean, deep fakes is a, is a very large problem. And I've seen that the Obama clip that you refer to. And there's there's also a good but more fun one about Tom Cruise, which is, I mean, absolutely spellbindingly realistic. I mean, that one, I absolutely couldn't see that that was a fake, um, which is, you know, mystifying. But in terms of, you know, the hybrid media system that we that we sit in, all you need is is that to trend in a minor way for then that would be that would uh, and. I did a, I, when I worked at Loughborough University. We we were doing studies around uh, post. It was a, it was a post uh, conflict environment essentially that where there'd been a chemical or biological attack, and and we looked at there were some incidents in the UK that we were able to sort of draw analogies to, and essentially the first mover into the social media space essentially had the longest impact in terms of how that message. You know, a month later, people were still retweeting, posting, talking about that initial post that was a suggestion of whatever it may have been, you know, something that wasn't how it was. And so where the danger of the deep fakes come in is if you could get like with the, the Obama um, post that you refer to and what he said, if that was considered to be real by, say, 10,000 people and they get it to trend on Twitter before you know what's happened, then Obama's having to issue, you know, corrections and denials and, and all the rest of it. And it's it changes the 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 information space for elections in a way that I think is going to be very difficult to control, particularly if the adversaries doing that have the timing right. Um, and there's no reason to think that they couldn't generate, you know, their own understanding, almost like an analog algorithm of when to push such a message in. Yeah, I, I think we're going to need some kind of a um, overseer of sorts to say, uh, and I, I've seen suggestions of people saying maybe we should have some kind of a, a, a metric system that says this is more or less true or more true or less true. We don't, 
<laughs> this was you know modified electronically or no it was taped once and broadcast i don't know i guess technology will evolve but you know uh, it, it it's quite concerning if you see that you know they are actually using you know people in the position of power to deliver a message or or a, a different message that they would uh, yeah. otherwise have delivered i'm not saying they're geniuses that uh, they certainly <laughs> have blunders of their own uh, but if we go around uh, creating this parallel universe where people are saying things, I guess that will feed uh, the fear of the misinformation and the fake news, the disinformation. Mm -hmm. and, and this kind of cycle is, is very negative, destructive for all of our societies. But it kind of uh, goes back. You mentioned, you know, uh, so as an economist, I, I try to follow the, the money trail, right? So uh, what's the benefit? But as you were mentioning in your talk, you said, well, they're trying basically to cause chaos, right? To create mm. confusion, right? So uh, there's not a real economic uh, ending point, but rather a, a goal, some kind of a strategic goal to disrupt, right? So is that what they're after? Or do you see that there's, how do they benefit? How do the adversaries benefit? Well, you see, I don't, I, I don't see it the way you do, actually, in, in that regard. I think there is there is both an economic benefit and it's a goal in itself. So if I can, if, if we were playing chess, for example, and I can stop you playing more effectively, then I have a greater chance of advantage or a greater chance of, you know, winning at crucial moments on the board. If I've if I've made you look the other way or made you think about something different at a moment in time, maybe I put a clown wig on or something and, and it, you know, distracts you just a moment for and you move a piece in the wrong in the wrong way, then I gain the the benefit that way. But also, if I can if I can do that and generate that, then I'm from a warfighting perspective. I I I maybe I'm deploying people in the wrong direction. I'm buying the wrong kit. I'm wasting precious resource, doing the wrong things. Whereas actually, I'm I'm really maybe I, I ought to be focused on you know in the case of Russia, maybe I ought to be focused on what they're doing in in the Caucasus or in, in Ukraine. But actually, I'm worried about their disinformation campaign. So I'm employing computer scientists and, you know, very, very clever people to try and battle that when actually I should be focused on more conventional concerns. I mean, again, this is just at the, the state level, but equally, I might, you know, be worried about news media. I might be looking completely in the wrong direction with news media. I might I might instigate uh, regulatory control over social media when actually that I, I, I'm, I'm curing the wrong problem. And that's the utility. And I think you could actually, you could build it out into an economic case, to be honest. But the utility is distraction, distraction of political leaders, distraction of uh, government administrations. So we no longer keep the eye on the ball, on the proverbial ball. We are distracted by all this hula baloo and we're not paying attention to the things that matter. Mm. So it's a very important use, uh, strategic use of, uh, well, technological weaponry, I should say. Mm. Uh, wonderful. Well, I, I have to ask you one more question. So what are you reading and can you recommend a good book? Yeah, it might disappoint you because it's not a very intellectual okay. book. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so I think, so uh, John le Carre uh, passed away, but he po posthumously uh, published, or his son did anyway, um, his final book, which is called Silverview, which is, um, so I think the joy of le Carre, right, and why I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in intelligence is so le carre and i'd read it with the, his autobiographical work uh, the pigeon tunnel he spent a long time talking about how he wasn't a critique of intelligence he wasn't trying to provide any insights into it but i think he inadvertently does so everything is really well drawn and, and interrogations in particular are really really well drawn 
um, just because of the amount that he saw. He was a very acute observer of life. And the reason why I would put it with the Pigeon Tunnel, his autobiography, uh, and particularly the chapters around Russia, are the way that he as an individual saw everything going on in Russia and the way he narrates it in the Pigeon Tunnel, I think gives you an insight then when he's talking about interrogations into how intelligence practitioners, intelligence officers think. And so that's a really long-winded recommendation for this book that's a really tightly drawn novel. Um, but I'm, I'm more than halfway through it and really enjoying it. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> no, that's great because I think we need to go different places. I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, I read is, you know, it ex excites the mind and it, you know, it's curiosity. And John Lecari is certainly a, an excellent writer. So thank you so much for you know, making a book recommendation because you know we're always looking for something else to read, uh, something <laughs> good, right? Actually, to read because there's a lot of stuff to read out there, but not necessarily it's it's good reading, right? <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, uh, uh, please uh, stick around. I'm gonna mm -hmm. switch gears a little bit and I'm gonna you know welcome Arthur to the show. Uh, hi, Arthur. Nice to see Hello. you. Hello. Hello. Yes. Good to have you here, you know, as promised, by the way, a show on Thursday, not on Friday, because I know I got lots of people commenting, no, we cannot come to your show because it's Friday after sundown, we can't come here. So as promised, on Thursday. So uh, uh, I'm very happy to have you here with us tonight. Um, so, I, on the question of Friday, um, I don't know if this is ever used in the U.S., but in the UK, when I was um, working in a company, Friday was Poets Day. Oh, Poets Day. Early tomorrow, mm -hmm. Saturday. Okay. So, so the idea of, you know, Friday is the evening you go to the pub to get drunk. So you can't really, well, in Once Upon a Time, you could go to the pub to get drunk. Um, so you can't really um, get full attention on a Friday unless it's really crucial. Okay, that's okay. It's Fridays are Fridays anyway. <laughs> so uh, just getting started, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and aware? Okay. Um, my journey has been very, very different. I graduated in biochemistry and one of my lecturers at the very end said, you know, you ought to look at information science. Now, I'm a bit older than Rob and my thoughts were, what on earth is information science? I want to be a biochemist. And I worked for a few years dropping test tubes and realized that working in a lab wasn't for me. I got a job with British Medical Association in the very, very early days of computing, helping to computerize their library. So working in a library, uh, com computerizing it um, from nothing. And then moved to um, the business information company, Dun & Bradstreet. So without realizing it, I was moving into the information world. And Dun & Bradstreet, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, basically has information on every single company in the world. Um, and I have that on my fingers. And my role was to help the marketing department gather in internal intelligence on what our customers were doing. And then my boss said, you're pretty good at analyzing our information systems why don't you start looking externally at what other players are doing what our competitors are doing so i moved into competitive intelligence and i started that around about i think 1990 and i realized i liked that but i also always had the aim to 
branch out on my own, not to work for somebody else, but to work for myself. And in 1995, I left Dun & Bradstreet. I kept connections. I still have connections. We're having a Dun & Bradstreet alumnus meeting, I think, in the first week of December. But I founded AWARE with a number of aims. One was to provide intelligence to, to clients on what their competitors are doing. The other was to write articles. The other was to teach, uh, lead workshops, again, to corporates and you know, to write articles and things like that. And I've been doing that since 1995. Um, over the years, my interests have changed slightly. Um, and I've also seen changes which I think are relevant to this topic. So that when I started in 1995, well, in 1993, I went to a trade show where one of our competitors announced there were creating an internet site and they would be selling products off the web. Now, this is 1993. And I thought, what on earth is the web? What on earth are they talking about? By 1994, Dun & Bradstreet had its own website. So did other companies. And I realized that that was one of the first things I'd need to do is to really get to understand how this will become a platform for gathering intelligence, gathering information. And I've kept as much up to date as possible on what's happening. And with digital natives that Rob mentioned, it's kind of tough because they grew up with it. I didn't, but I've tried to stay up with them um, and what they're doing. So I might not be on Snapchat, but at least I know what Snapchat is and what it does. Um, and I've looked at TikTok. So that's the sort of focus I'm taking. taking. And where I think I differ from a lot of my contemporaries in the competitive intelligence world is that they grew up looking at human intelligence as the way of finding intelligence. And it still is. But more and more social media intelligence, gathering intelligence, what people are saying on social media, open source intelligence, uh, signals intelligence. So the things that were always there from the military side um, is now very much in the competitive intelligence world, in the economic world, and the business world. Um, and if companies aren't looking at that, they're missing out. And we can see that in what's happening also in the, the state area, because you've got um, private organizations like Bellingcat that collect intelligence on what state actors like in Russia are doing, not just Russia, but globally, using open, primarily open source intelligence methods and um, getting attacked. So, for instance, Russia views them as a crypto or a branch of the British Secret Services. It's not. It's an independent company. Um, so that these are the sorts of things that interest me because I see things developing. And at the same time, I think a lot of companies aren't really... If you look at senior management in a company, they grew up in days before the internet. So although their staff might be aware, they often aren't aware. And so that makes them vulnerable to attack from state actors, from people who want to bring them down, from activists, uh, from a whole manner of different groups or people um, that just don't like them or want to gain intelligence over them. Now, I, I want to remain on that point for a little bit. 
So uh, you are a regular contributor to the magazine, and you, in your last ad article that you wrote was watching the watchers, right? So you mentioned companies that do not monitor anti-company activists are vulnerable. Uh, so in what other ways are companies vulnerable? Um, go on to Amazon and look up things like spy pen or spy plug. And they're very, very cheap. Anyone can buy them. So um, you pay a cleaner to install a spy plug in a company boardroom and it will record everything that goes on in that boardroom. And if you're not looking for these things or you're not aware of it, all your board meetings can be taped. Um, but you don't even need to do that if you really know. Um, I'm going to divide legal and ethical from illegal and unethical. So that's totally unethical. But companies aren't aware of some of the stuff they put out online. Um, there's an organization that I was researching a couple of years ago that was distributed throughout the, the UK and their board meetings were throughout the UK or rather this was people would travel into the boardroom and so they could see the minutes wherever they were. Those minutes, instead of being emailed, so they were always accessible, were put online in an unencrypted format that I came across through a Google search. Um, so for a period of, you know, a couple of years until that particular project was killed by COVID, um, I was accessing their board minutes, which you could find from Google, you could find, and they were not secured at all online. So people do stupid, stupid things um, and they've been doing that, you know, since the web was first created. Um, when I teach, I, saw, um, I have a section which I call stupid companies. There's a particular security company. It goes back now 15 years because that company's been acquired. Um, but it's a security company. Their job is was should be to protect information. They were actually protecting people because their role was to take people from the prisons to the jail, from jail to uh, the courts. So they would be escorting, making sure these people didn't escape. Um, in their annual results presentation, they put up a PowerPoint. In that PowerPoint was embedded a spreadsheet. In that spreadsheet was their customers. Um, various police forces, custodial services, forensic science service, you name it, with over the years, how much income they've been getting from each of these customers. And that was, well, it's, it's actually still on the web if you know where to look. Um, you go to the Wayback Machine and that presentation, those presentations are still there with the embedded spreadsheet that you could download. Um, and it's not as it's not just um, companies. Um, Professor Dover will remember the Kelly case, um, where there was an investigation with the Iraq War, and one particular um, scientist unfortunately committed suicide. But in the investigations, um, there was a lot of looks at what was going on, and 
one particular document had been uploaded onto the government website as a Microsoft Word document. And journalists came along and said, or rather the official stories, these are the only people who had been involved in editing this particular document. And some journalists came along and looked at the metadata behind that and found a few other names. And they sort of said, well, what about these names? And the government was saying, how did you know that? It was public information. It was there for anyone to find if you knew where to look. Um, and so the rules were changed. So only thing, information could be put up as an Acrobat file, a PDF secure file. Um, so that, um, that sort, of sort of information has stopped. And for companies, it's mostly PDF files still, but occasionally you'll find nuggets. So there's a lot of information out there that's publicly available if you know where to look. And those people who want to find it, now that can be people doing competitive intelligence like me, but it can also be people who are out to hurt you. So one of the best sources for competitive intelligence on things like the arms trade is the campaign against the arms trade. You look at their website and um, there are several campaign groups like that. Greenpeace on sort of climate activism. If they don't like you, they will record information and you can find stuff there. So the protest groups are good sources for competitive intelligence, but they're doing it for a purpose. They're not doing it to help the other companies in the industry. They're doing it to help the people who don't like the company. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you um, a parallel question. So uh, there's so the most recent scandal we have in the US, uh, you, you both of you, Professor Dobra may as well uh, recall this. There was the Columbine High School shooting. Uh, so that happened a few years ago, uh, but I guess it was last week, a couple of weeks ago, someone released tapes from the National Rifle Association board meetings. And what exactly were they saying? So someone had recorded them and stored them for a while, and now they threw it out in the open. So uh, now we have a debate. Uh, so this was not exactly kosher, the way in which they, they recorded without people knowing, and then it was distributed. So this was supposed to be, or allegedly is confidential information, whatever said in the board. So it's similar to your spy pen. Uh, but uh, now we have this debate going on. Well, uh, this wasn't obtained legally or, or not ethically, uh, but we quote, or a lot of people in society feel we have, we're entitled to know what exactly was going on. So is there a fine line here between uh, this was obtained unethically, but since it was obtained, now I want to know everything that's in there. So what are your guys' thoughts on, on this? Um, there's two sides. When you say ethically, if I... Rob said earlier about one of the aims is not to be surprised. If I'm trying to protect my back and I'm worried somebody may in the future hurt me, um, first of all, do I really care about the ethics of recording something? So if, I'm, if I want to protect my own interests, I have an interest in recording stuff that could be come back and hit me. And you might say, oh, well, that's wrong. But 
you go down any street in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, um, look at all the ring doorbells. All of them are recording what's going on. And I had an argument with a neighbor outside our front door. The whole thing is recorded. And if I ever had to go to court, that recording is pretty damning against the neighbor. Um, it wasn't deliberately recorded. It's just recorded. So it's not. I think it's how you use the recording and it is very definitely when um, you know, when you go to a meeting, you've got the idea of sort of Chatham Street rules and you mustn't divulge something. So then if somebody says, look, what we're saying here is going to be confidential, um, nobody should record anything. Then anyone who records basically is a complete toe rag and... I have no respect for them whatsoever. But if you know that something is going to be, dis let's say you're called into a disciplinary meeting with your boss. Um, are you going to go into that disciplinary meeting without making sure that every single thing that's said is not recorded? I know if I was called into a disciplinary meeting um, and I felt I was in the clear, and I felt I was innocent, I'd want to protect my interests. So the ethics become very, very gray when the technology is there. Um, the problem is that when it's a deliberate attack from outside, um, UK law says that it is okay to record a tele although when market research companies and various other companies call you, they say quite clearly, um, this record, this telephone conversation is being recorded for um, training purposes or whatever reason they give. Legally in the UK, you don't even have to say that. As long as one of the two parties is aware it's being recorded, that's okay. Um, the problem is if nobody of the people being recorded is aware, then, and that's where the the espionage aspects come in, in that the targets have no idea they're being recorded um, and they don't expect that to be recorded. And that's where companies need to protect themselves. Um, but I guess the, the rule is be very careful if you're saying something confidential. And the detection or, or the threat you do, is becoming much, much more sophisticated. Um, I, there's a device out there now, um, it's experimental, I don't think it's been commercialized, called Lamp Phone, which uses basically a standard camera with a few attachments to it. And you can record what's being said in a room a long, long way away by looking at the vibrations on a light bulb. Oh my God. Now, if you can do that, um, the assumption has to be that if you are saying something confidential and you think there is a possibility somebody might want to know, then you are, you know, assume you are going to be recorded and hope that you're not. And if you assume that and you protect your interests and you make sure that there's nothing there, then you're okay. Um, otherwise, um, 
the 11th commandment is thou shalt not be found out. And in a lot of these cases, uh, companies are just being stupid by not assuming that there is an adverse actor, whether it's a state actor, whether it's an activist, whether it's a competitor that is doing things that are totally unethical and totally illegal. And I would say that in the majority of cases, if you're doing legitimate competitive intelligence, you shouldn't even need to do that because the aim is to, the aim of a business is to win customers and to win customers and make profits. It's not to kill the competitor. It's not to destroy the competitor. If they lose out because you're doing a better job, if you're creating a better mousetrap than they are, so be it. That's their problem because they should have created, followed what was going on and created a better mousetrap. But if they're doing it, but you have to assume that there are unethical people there that are trying to steal your secrets, trying to steal what's there because they want to shortcut it. Um, and they don't really care too much about the technology. So China is very definitely in the espionage stakes, trying to get intelligence on what companies are doing to use those, that intelligence. There was lots of other examples, um, and especially in the political area. So um, there was a story a few years ago of a very, very attractive redhead called Katie Jones, um, who had a LinkedIn profile, and she was trying to get connections to various people in Washington think tanks. And she was a fake. So we were talking about deep fakes. And um, if you go to a website, which face is real, it's quite entertaining. Is it which? Yeah, I think it's which face is real. Um, it's quite entertaining trying to guess which of the two faces shown is the real one, which is the generated artificial um, picture and with experience you can but it's becoming harder and harder so the assumption must be that you are going to be monitored by people um, people are going to look at what you're saying so you have to say right what do I need to protect make sure you have a counterintelligence plan so that you protect what needs protecting and everything else, you can't protect everything. Um, it's going to be impossible. So you protect what needs to be protected so that anything else can be found. Um, it, if anything, you make a lot of noise so that they find stuff and they can't, they can't get what's important, but they do find stuff that's not important. But that wastes their time. It makes things more difficult for them. So from a counterintelligence perspective, that's one approach is to create noise. Um, but it becomes a problem. OK, uh, I have a different question. And it's it's related to what you just said. So you said when you know we're being recorded, maybe you don't even know. Right. Some people don't care, but you don't even know. So. Uh, there's this recent article that uh, Dr. Solberg Sirland actually wrote, and he discussed the damage that Swedish companies actually suffer from a variety of cyber attacks, right? Oh, the fact is some of the companies find out after the fact, right? Uh, or when it's too late. Uh, 
so what steps can a company take to kind of detect attacks? Uh, how do we go from here in terms of detection? Um, one thing you sh companies should do is have somebody test their systems. So deliberately try um, and attack the company. And it's not hard. Um, I'll give you a scenario. And this is a, a scenario from somebody I'm friendly with who his job was to detect or he was employed by companies to detect attacks or rather to see where the company was vulnerable. So I call up a company and say, hi, I'm interested in your product. Um, can you tell me a bit more about it? And you get put through to sales. And I develop a rapport with that salesperson. And I show that I'm serious. I might even put money and said, look, I'd like to buy a sample. And I buy a sample. I then send the guy or girl, depends on what it is, or who it is, um, a Word document that is targeted about this contract. It's a contract, let's say, to purchase so many items. And that Word document has embedded in it a couple of macros that opens out the system so I can then get into that system. The salesperson looks at the document, opens it, thinks it's purely you know, a contract, a sales thing, perfectly normal, and doesn't even think there might be a virus or malware inserted into that document. Um, you could even phrase it so that you encourage the person to share that document with some other colleagues. And now you're in the system and you now have malware in the system that can do whatever you design that malware to do. And if you're particularly clever, you can essentially get that malware so it doesn't do anything obviously nasty, but it ships back um, information or gives you a back, um, your cyber attackers access to the system. And then, of course, once you've got whatever you're looking for, you delete the malware. So there is no footprint even that this has happened. Um, so it's not if you've got the technology to do it, it's going to do it. So if so um, astute companies are going to make sure that information that comes from outside is kept in a sandbox so that it cannot infect a system. That's one approach. I'll give you an even easier approach. I go up to reception. I've been to a trade show. I've got a USB stick that um, they've given out for free with their logo on. Um, I go up to reception. I said, um, I'm looking for some brochures about your company. Can you give me some brochures, please? Um, and then as I'm leaving, I accidentally drop that USB stick with the logo on. And there's a re or I might drop it in the car park. And there's a reasonable chance that somebody will see it, pick it up, wonder whose this is, is plonk it into a computer and the computer's now infected. So the number of, I suppose, social engineering type techniques, if you want to be nasty, can be done. There's lots of them. Um, so how do you protect against that sort of attack? You protect against that sort of attack to make sure that there are strict rules about what can and can't go on a system and how things are done. But even there, 
you have to really think about where you can be attacked. Um, there's a great book. It's quite old now. I think it's called Spies Are Us by Ira Winkler, who specializes in uh, I suppose counterintelligence to show you know, he's employed by companies to test what can be done. And he gives an example where the company itself, their systems were completely secure. He's an ethical hacker and he could not hack into their systems, but he was being employed to find the plans for a nuclear power plant. So this was a nuclear power plant and he was being asked, are we secure? Can you get the plans? And he couldn't get them through standard hacking that he would normally do. So he started doing some research on the company and found that a, subsi a subsidiary that was not viewed as secure. So he went along to the subsidiary, got hold of the name tag, took that name badge, cloned it, and then used it as a entrance into the secure aspect, the secure buildings with a cover story and an excuse so that he could get access into the secure building. And he worked out, when I teach intelligence, competitive intelligence, one of the things I always say is, uh, think, why will information be available? Where will it be held? So if you're looking at plans for anything, a nuclear power plant, um, the information will have been available at some time. It's going to be on a computer. But for something like that, it's quite likely to be a physical document somewhere. Where that might that be held? In in this particular case, in sort of the graphics department in the documents area, um, by getting access to that area and dis and distracting one of the people there, he managed to get into one of the files and took the physical documents and just photographed them. Um, wow. Whether it's a story, it's a nice story, but it shows that you don't even need. Um, the cyber approach, um, if you're doing things, if you want to attack somebody, you can. Um, it's not ethical. Let's rephrase that. It's not ethical from a competitive intelligence perspective. If you are a climate activist or an animal rights company, an animal rights individual, let's say you are animal rights and you're against animal experimentation. Your ethical code is different from, let's say, mine, from Rob's, from yours. Because your ethical code will be that a pharmaceutical company that does experiments on animals is totally unethical and needs to be brought down. So your ethical code says attack. Um, if you are... North Korea and um, a certain film company makes a spoof movie about your leader, um, your ethics say you are shaming our leader. So your ethics say attack. So you can be as ethical as you like using your ethical values but maybe somebody else has a different ethical value. So you have to assume where can we be attacked? Does that make some sort of sense? 
No, it makes perfect sense. Of course, it's ethics is a day of the beholder. So according to our values and our judgments, we say this is ethical and this is not. But I see your point in terms of, well, the human rights, rights activists or the animal rights activists may say, well, this is unethical, therefore I, I need to take action, right? Uh, so uh, you mentioned some some of the methods, but you know the list is probably much longer in terms of the not so kosher methods of obtaining information. Uh, what else are we looking for? I mean, you, you mentioned the pen drive, the spy camera, the new phone. Um, what else is in, in the list uh, that we have to worry about? There is a great video on YouTube where um, people are looking to see how easy it is for people to give away their passwords. And they go up and through social engineering, um, they get people to divulge passwords. Um, there are a number of videos on social engineering that shows how easy it is. Um, uh, my favorite one, it's a demo. It's to show how easy this is, where the, um, the journalist goes along, well, give me an example of how you would get this. Um, say you want to get my access to my computer, my passwords, and uh, things like that. So the ethical, in this case, the, the social engineer um, says, no problems at all. And she phones up the company, the ISP that has all the information and to get to get the, the various information um it might have been a it might even have been the bank and immediately the person calls up said um i hope you can help me my husband told me that i need to get this information um sorry excuse me my baby's crying because she's been playing a baby sound so um i need this in and my husband's aware and if i don't get it i'm going to be in real trouble and that baby crying persuades people to give information. So there are some very sneaky techniques that can be used. I don't want to use the word unethical. That can because in this case, it's ethical. It's showing how it can be done. Um, but you can get information by asking the right question in the right way at the right time. Um, and that's basically human intelligence from a competitive intelligence perspective. The competitive intelligence ethics will say that you have to identify who you are, you have to say your name, but it, you also don't have to say, hi, I'm phoning you up because I want to gather intelligence on what your um, future roadmap is. Is. Nobody's going to say that, but you might call up and say, "Hi, I'm interested in your products. Um, is this the latest release? Is anything new coming out soon? Should I wait for that?" And then, once the salesperson or whoever you're speaking to starts to give information, you can then stay a bit deeper. Um, or you might say, um, "I saw that on the web you've got this." Um, I read also there's a lot of problems with this particular product. Um, is anything coming out that's going to correct those problems? So there's all sorts of approaches that you can take. Um, what makes it unethical from a competitive intelligence perspective is when you don't say who you are and don't say who you're working for. Um, 
And that's why I like open source intelligence, because the moment you start that phone call, if the other person's any good at all, um, you can hear them typing your name out on LinkedIn. So the moment they see um, Arthur Weiss, competitive intelligence, they shut up. Um, and I will say, hi, my name's Arthur Weiss. I'm with a company called Aware. Um, we're doing some work looking at. So I have to try and phrase it in such a way that they don't look on LinkedIn. Um, but if you're on the, should we say on the dark side, and the dark side is from our perspective, um, you're not going to say anything like that. You'll say, hi, my name's uh, John, John Doe. Um, I was referred to you by somebody. Um, and that's a classic technique is that um, one technique that people will use is they will call up the CEO's office, get to speak to the CEO's PA, find out the PA's name, and then call the person they really want to speak to. Hi, I was just speaking to PA name. Um, and I think you're probably the best person to help. You haven't said um, you were referred to this, but you, I think you're probably. And the moment you've mentioned the PA, the CEO's PA's name, the person thinks this is authorized. So they're going to start speaking to you. Um, so the human intelligence side, you need to be very careful. Um, and there are companies that are becoming very good at it. Um, which can be extremely frustrating when you're supposed to get competitive intelligence on a company. But in a sense, from a counterintelligence perspective, I have to congratulate them because they're doing it the right way. Um, so there are various ways that you're collecting intelligence, the open source intelligence, the what people say on social media, um, Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a great source. Um, Quora, Reddit, um, and you can post questions on Quora, you can post questions on Reddit, and you can post questions on Twitter. And if you're lucky, somebody's going to respond and you'll get the information. So the counterintelligence for a company has to be aware of where you can be attacked, where whether it's um, legitimate competitive intelligence or whether it's a state actor or whether it's an activist trying to hurt you, be aware of where these things are, the sort of techniques that can be tried, and make sure that people are trained. Um, and I'll give a real example. I was doing some trade show intelligence several years ago, and one of the people I went up to, um, I started asking a couple of the questions I would normally ask, and straight away he said, excuse me, are you in competitive intelligence? And I said, yes, how did you know? Well, before we go to trade shows, we're sent on training courses for the sorts of things to watch out for. Um, it's a shame I wasn't giving that training course because I then proceeded to say, oh, well, I'm really surprised because nobody else here has um, said anything like that. They've all been answering my questions. Have you spoken to any of the other companies? You know, what do you think of some of the other companies? 
So I'm not asking him about his company. I'm asking him about what he thinks about the other companies um, at the trade show. And by him telling me that, because I'm not asking him about his company, so it's not a threat, he's giving me intelligence about what he thinks or what his company thinks about the other companies. So you really have to be aware that if somebody knows what they're doing, which gets back to what I was saying before, what do you need to protect? What can you give away? Um, what he should have said is, um, well, I can't answer that. And he could have given me some other information or led me astray. No. And that way I go away happy thinking I've got intelligence. He goes away happy thinking he's fooled me and he's protected the information. But people aren't trained to do that. So it's more about the same, same kind of issue. I mean, having more training. But I wanted to ask you specifically, and you mentioned it a couple of times, just want to make sure we, we go over that one more time. So the issue of social engineering, right? So here appears to be a, a very big deal where people you know befriend you or oh I play golf as well or you know well, I play tennis as well and then it starts with tennis and then before you realize so what do you do and you know where do you work and uh, so uh, should we have more training about you know all those methods so so how big of a problem is social engineering anyway can, can you actually get actionable information out of that uh, I personally don't enjoy I much prefer the online searching now because I don't get the, a buzz out of calling people up, asking them questions and realizing that they don't really, they should have asked who I am. They should have asked uh, why I need this information. Um, and so they tell me stuff they shouldn't tell me. So I don't get a buzz out of that. So it's a side of what I do that I don't enjoy. But there are people out there who really do get a buzz out of people telling them information they shouldn't be saying. Um, and I think Fasadova would probably know more about this than me. But I think that's how one of the sort of approaches when you're training um, intelligence officers um, see what they can gather by going to a pub about individuals. And you can do that. Um, you can go to a pub and get people to say really what they shouldn't be saying uh, by just asking the right questions and buying them a couple of beers and things like that. Um, and that gets to the John le Carre um, type um, book. And... Uh, Oh help! I'm trying to remember the name of the name of the the story. Um, it's gone. Um, the little drummer girl. And the heart, the first bit of the book is all about cultivating um, the person who is going to be the agent. And she's complete innocent and doesn't know and thinks that she's doing a favor. And it's all about the sort of techniques and the research that goes in to get somebody to do something that they wouldn't do normally. Um, so. If you can't, if you've got a completely secure system um, where on your. Devices that you think aren't 
properly internet enabled, but of course they are because everything is now. You've changed your password so it's not admin and password. Admin is the user ID and password is the password or whatever the default is that comes with the brand new equipment. And you've changed that and you've done everything that you should have done. Um, how do you protect against a bad actor trying to persuade you to give away information. And I gave an example that if you're trying to do a business deal, that softens entry like anything because people think, okay, this is a business deal. My job is to sell. So because my job is to sell, I'm going to listen to this person and I'm going to take this person on board. And um, I'm going to... Uh, if the person, well, I'm going to be in your area soon. Is there any way that we can actually meet on your premises and you can show me a bit around the factory? Um, and once that's done, you know, so you have to have rules about what you show people and where you you take people so that things are secure. Um, and if you go to a lot of companies which do um, ensure security, first of all, um, visitors will have a photo on their name tag and they're only and they will be escorted so there are only certain parts of a building they're not allowed to go to. Um, but not everyone does that. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the drama, right? And part of the issue is uh, perhaps uh, people are not trained. You said some, some people you dealt with were trained and some were not. In terms of training, uh, in addition to, you know, the traditional uh, CI training that people get, uh, should we be talking more about, you know, counterintelligence training or talking about, you know, social engineering training? Uh, what kind of training, and actually, you know, Professor Dover, feel free to chime in, what kind of other training should we be focusing on in terms of enabling people, you know, to protect the company in situations like that? Um, when you're taught competitive intelligence, you're taught the topic or you're taught about key intelligence topics. So you're told there's key players, um, strategic topics, early warning topics. There's somebody in South Africa called Douglas Bernhardt. And he wrote a book called uh, Perfectly Legal, Perfect, I think Perfectly Legal and Ethical Competitive Intelligence. Um, I'm not advocating Douglas Bernhardt for his works. But one thing he said, which I think was interesting, is he said there should also be a counterintelligence aspect to competitive intelligence. So when you're looking at what you should be monitoring on your competitors and your business environment, and I'm saying business environment because that's uh, anybody, anybody who could be against you, what's going on, the foresight, looking at the future, the horizon scanning, the whole works. One aspect of that should be um, protecting your own organization and protecting the information within your own organization. So if you've identified what information needs to be protected, um, you're one step ahead of a lot of other organizations. So it's um, one of the first things you should be doing is saying, what do I need to ensure doesn't get into the wrong hands? Um, and sometimes you can't patent it. Uh, and even if you can, is that a real protection? 
So as an example of something that really can't be patented, if you look at Formula One and the innovations and the changes in Formula One, if you patented some of these things that will make a racing car drive a bit faster, um, by the time the patent has been approved, um, everybody else will be doing it and be well ahead. So if you look at um, when they changed the tyres on a Formula One uh, course, watch the sequency, how each company or each uh, team protects so that nobody can actually see what they've done to the car to make it drive that tiny bit faster. Um, so you have to think like that. What must I protect so that even if it's, you know, what intellectual property must I protect? Um, what people must I protect? Um, I have a, a comment uh, from Daniel here. He's saying, you know, in terms of uh, finding uh, the right, uh, the red, right information, he actually, you know, said some something more in terms of uh, uh, complying, not complying to ensure data security. So in some aspects, uh, uh, people don't know what they're divulging. So should that also be part of the training? I mean, speak more clearly in terms of, you know, although this is not patented, though that is not a trade secret, those are the sorts of things we can talk about and those are the sorts of things we cannot. So is there another area where, you know, training uh, could play a positive role? Well, I think actually you could have security essentially by design. So I look at my, <clears throat> my sector, which is obviously higher education, And actually, we are sort of security by non-design in the sense that we're meant to broadcast as often as possible. But actually, there are some things that are worked on by academics. You know, if, you, if we look at nuclear technology, so metallurgy, for example, which obviously you shouldn't be broadcasting by design. So, so you know, I think actually companies should have a better awareness of what it is, the information they're protecting. And that's really the lesson from Chelsea Manning. Right. So you provide um, all access information to someone who is essentially a, a sort of on, on the ground. Then if they go rogue in any way or turn whistleblower in, in her case, then actually, you know, you get into trouble. So it's partially around understanding. So like, like Arthur says, it's really a compartmentalization of what are the important bits of information, who has access to them. And then if you have that compartmentalized information and you have a system whereby in effect on your badge it has you know access to x y and z because you are you know essentially cleared to that level then when you're doing that counterintelligence you know roughly speaking the cohort of people who would be able to give that information away or do something you know nefarious with that information but also they will be trained to know exactly that they what they should be saying and then about what and so in some cognate industries so arms manufacturing so the manufacturer of defense equipment but people will know to the nth degree, what they should and shouldn't be saying. But in banking, for example, will they know, other than commercial sensitivities, what they should and shouldn't be saying? Will, will someone who's a, essentially a stockbroker, for example, know, they will know about insider trading and therefore the regulation around what information you can give out. But in a bar on a, on a Thursday night, in a bar on a Friday night, will they be as you know, significantly aware to, to protect what they're saying about rumors and, and all the rest of it, but which might be actually quite important proprietary information say about you know develop a cryptocurrency or maybe etfs around crypto might be a really really contemporary example someone might talk about the, the mechanics of how one might like transact that and that might be actually the crown jewels of their company yeah um and so it, it's it's really you know really i think it's the, the stovepipe in bunkering and control of well what's the really important information and a little bit like arthur said earlier around the the signals and noise 
actually you might you might be entirely transparent about a whole load of stuff company information in fact you may be someone that displays an awful lot of company information so someone on an open source intelligence like drive can like pick all this stuff up but actually the information that's really important is on a an unnetworked computer it's only accessed by 10 people all of those 10 people are known they have to sign in and they have to sign out when they go to that room it's really clear who's had access to that information and therefore if it goes walkabout you know where to look but i would go a step further that um you know that but those people should also know if some the sort of questions that people could be asking them hmm. and what answers to give so if let's say you know if 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 i call somebody up and say um i'm trying to find information about and i get a response i'm sorry i can't talk about that immediately that person has said first of all they know mm-hmm. secondly um that this is secret information and if i'm somebody who feels i i don't care about confidentiality for me Somebody says something. I've actually had cases where somebody's actually said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. It's confidential. I won't use it. But that's ethical competitive intelligence. But if I'm not ethical from a competitive intelligence perspective, then that's now a signal that of where to dig. If that person doesn't say, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. Oh, that's an interesting. That's totally interesting. Yeah, that's kind of the thing. And gives and gives an answer, but that's totally interesting. And gives an answer that misleads, or it might be a true answer, but it's not the whole truth. So it's they know what they're allowed to say. The person goes away thinking this person doesn't know very much, um, and they've 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 missed the important. They've missed something. So it's right. misleading as well as keeping quiet but i do think so but i mean it was a much much earlier point that you made around the the nra and columbine and i and i don't know the particular i know obviously the columbine case but i don't know the, this revelation i think what's what's interesting in terms of ethics and yes all ethics are personal up to a point and and arthur was right when he said around you know actually those engaged in activism will think that that's justified because they you know have a political standpoint that means that it that it's justified I think one of the things that's a, a real reality now, and you asked, you know, in the series of questions you asked me around the new norm. Well, actually, so you can draw an analogy in, in the intelligence space with um, John Young's Cryptome website. So there's a debate within intelligence studies, which is the field of study that I work within, around whether if it appears on WikiLeaks or Cryptome, and it's still got its protective markings on, i.e. it says secret, top secret. I mean, but it is out there. You can, you can read it, whether actually you could cite it. Because in theory, you, you're citing something that is still protectively marked. Now, anyway, so that's a particular case study. But in that space where an activist has released a video, the problem is the court of public opinion. So there are, in, in a courtroom, there will be uh, rules and regulations in every jurisdiction about what is submissible and what, well, what's admissible and what's not admissible or submissible and not submissible. But actually, from the point of view, and it, and it was really germane, and I won't say who, the, the particular people involved, but in, in the UK, there was these things called super injunctions. So you couldn't even talk about the fact that this person had an injunction, right? But all I need to do is switch on my VPN and, and like, you know, pretend I was in another jurisdiction and away I could see everything. 
And so, so I know what I know, but I can't say what I know. But the, the, the problem is once it is out there, people in the pub were talking about it, even though it's covered by a super injunction. And so it's that I think what companies need to realize is once the horse has bolted, once the, you know, once the information is gone, it's gone and it persists. I mean, it, I, I think that the job of actually cleaning a piece of information away from the Internet, like, you know, Arthur talks about the Wayback Machine and uh, and the company that was very obvious when I was talking about um, once it's out there, it, it's just gone. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's an absolute zero percent kind of tolerance for risk in terms of that information leaking out. And I think personally, I think the 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 insider threat is more pronounced than any potential technical intrusion, because actually, if you set up your your file spaces correctly and you have sensitive information within encrypted spaces and you have control over who accesses them, actually then the insider threat of someone being essentially paid to betray whatever it is they're being paid to betray is the is the significant threat up to that point if you don't have that then actually so the mole the problem of the mole comes in yeah 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 and take the attitude that if you pay somebody enough they may well they may have a reason to um if you can find enough information about a person and some weaknesses um they may be willing to um, divulge if they think they can be protected or give clues so that they can find something. But going on to the super injunction aspect, um, because this shows in a sense how it didn't work because all the super injunctions, every, all of them were named on Twitter and there were a couple of Twitter feeds that said them. But as another example, um, within, within the... Um, the, well, I was going to say the UK and the European Union. I was going to say within the European Union, as it then was, um, there's um, privacy laws that Google is supposed to obey, or all, sorry, all search engines are supposed to obey. So you can ask Google to remove yourself or remove your name. And people routinely look at Google and they ask Google to remove the details. So if you go on to Bing, or any other search engine, it's all there because nobody asked Bing to remove it. Um, so if you think there's been an, um, a request to have data removed, sometimes it can be in other places. And that stays again on, I mean, that's on a personal thing. Um, and I, I can give examples, but they probably won't mean anything. Um, but, it, you know, I would always search both because nobody ever asked for both to be removed. I don't think it well if they do I've never found it um, but what you it, it means that you really have to think where is the threats and it's not just going to be necessarily the obvious Google but there are other sources out there that you have to think about and other ways that people can attack you so when you sort of say somebody could be a mole um, When somebody goes home from work and they've had a tough day at work, do they give clues to their wife or partner or spouse? So maybe the spouse may have some information or give clues that allow you to put things together. Because the whole thing about intelligence is it's a jigsaw puzzle. Anyone who says, oh, I'm going to get everything there is there is wrong. 
you get a number of pieces and then the analysis puts the rest of the pieces together. So there may be enough information from people who don't have that security. Um, you might be able to get it from. So you really have to think where threats could come from and possibly um, spouses should also be encouraged to not divulge information at all um, to anybody. Spouses need to be trained now. Well, good luck <laughs> with that. Yeah. Historically, that always, you know, the idea of blackmail was always viewed as a potential threat, um, which is why for long periods of time, um, homosex homosexuality was forbidden in um, secret services. Well, I mean, but, but it's anything. But I think that you know the standard bar for for those sorts of vetting criteria is it something that you'd be upset about, feel vulnerable about, feel pinched about? If it, I mean, you know, not necessarily about sexuality, but anything actually in your in your private life or history that actually, if someone mentioned it in a you know in a, with a loud hailer in a public place, that you'd go war. And, and it's those sorts of those sorts of issues. And I and I guess you know those those are easy to wrap around in a, in a government space, but they're very much more difficult to wrap around in a corporate space because yeah. of the the you know the different types of cultures environments patterns norms that that proceed there and of course um linkedin does make things very easy to find information about an individual and then you go on to facebook and see what they posted on facebook and find pictures of them at university um a bit drunk um which is why companies um and it gets to the ethical issues again, but a different sort of ethical. Are you allowed to ask a future employee to um, show their social media? But people do. And if you can't show a social media, I've had, I mean, not at this institution, but previous institutions where students have been turned down for jobs because they didn't have a Facebook profile. So equally, you, there's a bandwidth of quote unquote normal that you need to sit within. So you, your social media doesn't need to have 2,000 friends and look like you were drunk every weekend. But equally, you can't be that person that said, you know what, I don't fancy being on social media because that also looks awry in some way. Yes. The weirdos, basically. Yes. Yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I guess it's, it's a fair question because the way I see it, you know, there is a little bit of intrusiveness, of course. They go into your Facebook. Why would the employer, you know, needs to know you had a barbecue, you know, somewhere else, right? Uh, but so, but on the other hand, they feel threatened that if there's no information out there, I, I use one of those modes, right, to get a job in here and, and capture yeah. some kind of information, right? So it goes well, both ways. Are you someone, you know, use a use a U.S. context, maybe, you know, are you someone that um, spent a year? pushing QAnon material and therefore are you potentially blackmailable in the future if all you know you suddenly think actually I, I I don't believe in that stuff and I'm you know wish I had never said that but actually it's available does that make you a subject to blackmail if you have a you know well-paid job and someone comes along and says oh by the way I know that you did this stuff and if you don't tell me x y and z I mean maybe you know tiny stuff to begin with that you think as, a, as an individual, I don't mind giving that over because actually, you know, there's no danger in that. And then obviously they've got you in a double bind, which is one, the, the previous conduct. And then second, that you've passed over a tiny bit of information that still could compromise you further. 
So, I mean, that's a classic Russian compromat type methodology. The, the slippery slope, right? You go yeah, yeah, exactly right. And we, I mean, you see an awful lot of people in, in certainly white collar crime that, that basically get snared in that way. Oh, I, you know, I'm not a criminal, but I engaged in this small activity and it suddenly became a, a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Um, and so you see that kind of almost like snowball effect. I never smoked. I only inhaled. <laughs> well, quite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, but here there's uh, awful cases of people who you know, take uh, you know uh, people's naked pictures and put somebody else's faces, or you know, you know, mm. they send it around and used to blackmail. So it's all sorts of things uh, due to technology, you know, possible, right? And that gets to the deep fake question that we discussed earlier, um, uh, and it also gets to the you know detecting deep fakes and something mm. that. Um, Rob didn't mention um, is a lot of people's attitude towards news and fake news and what is real and what is not real. So I've come across people who have said, what uh, you actually believe the MSM, MSM being mainstream media. Um, okay. And the reason they said that is I said, excuse me, what you're just posting is complete nonsense. Um, and I then give them something from the BBC or from one of the reputable newspapers, and they and they rubbish it and said it's a load of nonsense. Um, and politically, that's becoming more and more almost acceptable. I mean, if you look at I, I can't say for the US, but if you look at certain politicians within the UK now, um, they are posting all the time on um, far left sources are much less on the mainstream media so they distrust the mainstream media um there was an for professor dover there was an article there was something from diane abbott who was the shadow home secretary in morning star online that was shared but i don't recall seeing her writing anything in the times or the Guardian, or even the Guardian, possibly the Guardian, certainly the Times. But Morningstar Online is essentially the um, the magazine for the uh, or the newspaper for the Communist Party of the UK. And the Socialist Workers Party, yeah. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. But I think you know. So from that point of view, I think the idea of left and right as as sort of like you know a political dichotomy is dead. So for me, it's actually system and anti-system. And it might equally be globalization and anti-globalization or, you know, as, as Theresa May was the, the prime minister here a while ago, um, you know, citizens of nowhere or citizens of somewhere. I mean, it's that kind of dichotomy now, I, th I think, that is more relevant. And people talking about left and right in that sense is, is as, as Mr. Trick. But so QAnon and Socialist Worker Party are both anti-system. They, they would say they were the opposite ends of the spectrum. Correct, but they're not the opposite ends of the spectrum because they're both anti-system. They both have the same yeah. critique of the government, of governments actually, not just the government, and also of of mainstream media and and you know, other sources of information, including myself. I'm sure. So when you're looking at potential attackers, um, it becomes then helpful to say, um, let's look at those who are anti-system, mm. and it doesn't matter whether they're right, they're left, um, whether it's religious fundamentalism, um, they don't want to go through legal channels. So um, 
somebody who's willing to bomb an abortion clinic is anti-system. Somebody who's willing to try and change the laws is pro-system. Correct. Um, and then what do you do when you have people like AOC, um, Alexandra um, Ortez mm -hmm. in the States, where does she sit? Because she's part of the system. Well, I, yeah, I mean, she is part of the system. And um, whether she identifies as being part of the system or not, she is clearly part of the system. And so, you know, what we have seen in the last five years is anti-system politicians actually becoming the, the establishment. And that is in and of itself quite interesting. So in the intelligence space, those anti-system politicians have basically claimed the claimed intelligence agencies to be opposed to them and also have tried to encourage those intelligence systems and machinery of intelligence to investigate their opponents. Uh, there's a you know very notable intelligence studies um, scholar called Gregory Treverton, who I think also worked in the FBI, you know, who describes this politicization, this sort of maelstrom of politicization where, you know, actually speaking truth to power becomes very, very confused um in those sorts of circumstances um yeah it's the the yeah that what you do with a an anti-system politician who actually acquires power is a, is a very interesting thing wonderful i think we we had a wonderful talk today uh i wanted to you know take the time once again to thank you so very much for you know you're taking the time and to speak with people you. and share your thoughts and ideas in your work uh, as always Thank you so much for, for sharing because this is about sharing and you both are very gracious to come on and, and share your, your thoughts and ideas and your perspectives and uh, hopefully uh, our dreams materialize and our concerns kind of uh, go away a little <laughs> bit or if not, we wash them down at the pub, but not today, but tomorrow. tomorrow. Not today, but tomorrow. And I'm looking forward to tweeting this on YouTube and putting it onto Facebook. And, uh, that would be yeah. fun. Brilliant. Thank you, Ron. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Thank you. So uh, let's go back to our agenda. We had a wonderful time uh, with both Professor Dover and Arthur Weiss again. Uh, I wanted to share a little bit about the upcoming events. Uh, so uh, our list, where's our list? So on 11-26, uh, it's going to be Market Research Day. We're going to welcome Mahesh Gale. Uh, he runs a market research company. We're going to talk about changes in market research, uh, recent changes to the pandemic, what changed about collection of information, how you conduct your research. Uh, as promised, I'm going to bring back Fouad Benyouk to talk about his book, How to Set Up Competitive Intelligence. Uh, on the 3rd of December, it's all about the cooperation and university partnerships, how to make them work or how to make them work better. On the 9th, it's Sci-Fi Day. We're going to go and talk to Tom Lombardo about using you know, sci-fi, basically, uh, as a thinking tool, as a strategy. So not about you know, just you know, the, the sci-fi proper, but uh, using it as a thinking tool, as a strategy tool, as imagining a future. So it, it, it's very interesting. We'll continue more on the same topics. Please continue to send your thoughts and ideas. We'll continue to explore the metaverse, and sustainability, those seem to be uh, two themes that we want to hear more. We're going to bring uh, Joyce Joy, a fantastic futurist, and she has a wonderful newsletter. Uh, we'll be covering some of the Markets and Markets events. They have a bunch of uh, CEO roundtables uh, upcoming at the beginning of the year, and as promised, you know, uh, a Thursday show. So it doesn't interfere with anyone's pub schedule, and everybody's happy about that. Uh, so uh, one more time, uh, I just wanted to uh, take a moment to thank you so very much for 
taking the time to be here with me and the guests, investing your time, uh, sharing your thoughts and ideas and asking questions. Uh, we are still available. We can continue the dialogue via Facebook, Twitter, you know, of course, and YouTube. YouTube is the repository of all the recordings. So if you feel like, you know, we didn't have time uh, to ask a question or you have some other thoughts, please uh, feel free to continue the discussion, uh, post over there, or if you're listening uh, through Spotify or via, you know, RSS in a podcast and you have a question or a comment, please go to the YouTube channel and post it over there. I will monitor every single one of them and I will bring it back to the guests. So with that, again, uh, one more time, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. And I will leave you with our institutional message. See you next time.